This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Dr. Suvrat Bhargave is the author of a new book called Moment of Insight, Universal Lessons Learned from a Psychiatrist's Couch. Dr. Bhargave is a board-certified psychiatrist specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry employing empathy, education, and empowerment, he's been able to relate to a multi-demographic audience. Affectionately known for his relatable expertise, Dr. Bargave is highly sought after to lecture locally, nationally, on a broad range of topics pertaining to personal growth, effective parenting, relationship satisfaction, and mental health outcomes. After completing his residency training and specialty fellowship from Duke University, Dr. B, as he is known by his patients, continued his practice in hospitals and community health and private practice settings. And in this episode, Dr. B and I talk about a lot of things, including how both shame and its opposite, feelings of self-worth, shape our capacity to be successful in all parts of our lives. We talk about what it takes to address the fundamental question of who you are and the common challenges we face in doing so. Dr. B describes the stigma of mental health, of mental illness rather, particularly for men in our society and how we can address it by shifting the mainstream discussion from mental health problems to emotional wellness. Really important idea. And a practical one, too, that affects so many of us. We tackle all this and more, including practical ideas for how to raise children who feel good about themselves. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from Dr. Suvrat Bhargave, a wise and practical psychiatrist who has much to teach all of us about emotional wellness in all the parts of our lives. Dr. B, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much, Stu. Thank you for letting me be on, share some insights, and uh, I have to say I am really excited about this discussion. I, I listen to your show. I'm all about uh, understanding the balance not only outside of ourselves but within ourselves, and I, I think it's going to be a good one. Well, I appreciate your, your spending time with us. Let's, let's jump right in. I, I really appreciate uh, the focus on wellness and health rather than mental illness, uh, and I want to get into that. But before we do, can you just give us a brief... Uh, synopsis uh, or explanation of, uh, for our listeners as to what attracted you to the practice of psychiatry and, and how your approach has evolved to what it is now? Yeah, certainly. 
My journey towards psychiatry was an interesting one now that I look back on it in that I had no idea about psychiatry. It was not on my radar at all as I was uh, going through the path of uh, medical school and and so forth. Um, I I remember as far back as people would ask me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. I would always say a doctor, but I don't know if psychiatry was was even anywhere in in my vocabulary. What were you thinking of? You know, to me, I thought I would want to be a pediatrician. I I loved working with kids. Mm -hmm. I loved being around kids. Um, I knew how important it was for there to be the right kind of influence in a child's life. And I thought, gosh, if I could be a little bit of that, that would be fantastic. Hmm. So I I really went into medical school fully committed to to doing pediatrics. Now, was that because of your own experience in your own childhood that somehow informed why what you knew about what children need? I think so. I mean, you know, whether I knew that consciously or not, what I knew was that for all my own struggles in my own childhood, uh, what what helped to get me through was I constantly had people in my life who would tell me how how much they loved me, how how much I was uh, valued, and and what purpose I had in life. And whether I believed it or not, I had these people that I respected and loved telling me that. And I thought, well, if they think so, then maybe there's something to it. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think it. It was a part of that decision that I wanted to work with children, too. There is a sense of giving back something that you mm-hmm. know made such a difference in your life to other, mm-hmm. to other children. Uh, well, I, I have about 14 other questions about that, but I'm, I'm not going to pursue them at this very <laughs> moment because I want to hear more about how, as an adult, you evolved in your, in your thinking and in your practice. Yeah, no, so I, getting into psychiatry for me was really... Um, came from a place of needing to be a specialist of some type of some type within the world of pediatrics. I, I knew I wanted to work with kids. Mm-hmm. I found that it was daunting the idea of being a general pediatrician because, you know, our colleagues have to know a little bit about a lot of things. And I think mm-hmm. it was my own anxiety that kind of led me to needing to be an expert in something, have my little corner of pediatrics. So I, I actually stumbled onto child psychiatry. I took it as an elective, and I just knew. I just knew that. This is what I wanted to do, and so much of that was because I felt like I was really now sitting with a child, not just asking where they hurt, but I was asking really how they hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what were the different levels of their hurt? How much of that hurt came from, you know, the, the toe that they had stubbed, but how much of their hurt really just came from maybe not feeling good enough or going through something difficult in their lives? And it just felt like a really wonderful, well-rounded approach to someone's well-being. And so psychiatry was exciting for me, and, and, and I went into it that way. And then in the course of practicing psychiatry, um, I can tell you I appreciate the question about how has it evolved. Mm-hmm. I, I would never have truly understood going into psychiatry what a journey it was going to be in terms of understanding our own innate value, our own sort of spiritual uh, understanding of ourselves. I and mean, there was so much more to being well um, than just identifying anxiety, depression, ADHD, and some of these other things. Uh, it was a deeper journey than that. So, mm-hmm. so it has definitely changed for me in, in the two decades now um, that I've been practicing, that I, I view it as something much more than what people would think of when they think about mental health and mental illness. So what do people think of when they, when they what, what's conjured in the, in the typical mind of an American citizen when they think of mental illness? And, and how is your approach uh, different than that in, in, in terms of what you're trying to uh, change in, mm-hmm. in our internal and our you know, external conversations about what mental health is all about? 
I mean, I think to characterize that the best, I, I, I often think of if I were to walk into a room full of people and, and ask the room uh, the question, how many of you in here suffer a mental illness? Um, I think even if people did, they're, they're likely to not raise their hands because there's some sense of, um, you know, shame that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. Now, if I walk into that same room and I say, hey, and by the way, I'm holding up my hand as I say this, hey, how many of you guys in here think you could be more emotionally well? How many of you feel like you could fortify yourselves in a, in a, in a better, stronger way so that you could be more emotionally well? 100%. I think many of us would raise our hands. 100%, right? Yeah, right? So, so it's a journey that we recognize. It's a journey that we don't judge ourselves for in the same way as when you hear the word mental illness mm-hmm. and, and mental health. Um, so, so I think where we have to start changing this and where we start to have a conversation is to say when we talk about mind, body, spirit, um, we need to really talk about how to balance those three aspects of who we are, and that includes being well mm-hmm. with our emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the the traditional uh, sort of implication of mental illness and the stigma associated with it is that it's somehow characterological, that there's something wrong with you, and that there's almost a, a moral component to it, that you're lacking in uh, fortitude and the will to make yourself um, normal. Yeah, yeah right? completely agree. Completely am I, am I getting that right? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's exactly my point. And, and you know, to, to say mental illness kind of puts you in a corner where you feel either alone or you certainly feel ostracized. But to say, hey, we're on a journey to continue to get emotionally well, just like we're on a, a journey to get physically well and, and spiritually strong. Uh, I mean, we're all on that journey together, right? And so there's an implied connection that occurs when you say it that mm-hmm. way, as opposed to saying someone's mentally ill. And, and, and the core of dealing with someone who's suffering, at least from the standpoint of their emotional well-being, is to deal with shame. You have to knock out shame in the very beginning of that journey. Mm. And, and sometimes the shame that comes in with a patient when they come in for an initial appointment is that they have to be there at all. Sure. Here they are seeing a shrink and, and talking about these words that scare them, whether it's depression or anxiety or any of the other things we talk about. And, and so you've got to tackle the shame head on. Mm. Why is that the starting point in most of the patient experiences that you have? So I, I believe that in the common thread experience and in, in all the people that I've seen of all different backgrounds over all, the, all this time um, is that so many people struggle with their sense of worth. Um, I mean, the, the question that is the most powerful question you'll ever ask yourself, I believe, and the one that you really, if you've never asked yourself, you need to give a lot of thought to is who am I? Who am I? At my core, who am I? Am I the things that I feel? Am I the things that I've gone through in life? Am I a result of, um, you know, the choices I've made? Who am I? Who am I? And, and so much of shame is rooted in the belief that who I am is not good enough. Hmm. And again, that might be because of what I'm feeling, or it might be because of trauma I've experienced in my life, or it might be because my relationship's not going well. But at our core, so many people struggle with not feeling good enough. Mm-hmm. And shame really is the idea and the belief that you are not innately good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why, you know, when you talk about depression as a condition that, that makes you feel helpless and hopeless, 
so much of that is rooted in shame. When you talk about anxiety being a disease of doubt and second guessing, mm-hmm. so much of that is rooted in shame. Um, so whether anyone ever comes in and actually says to me, hey, I'm here to talk about my shame or not, mm-hmm. where we... That doesn't happen very, very no, often, I expect. It doesn't. People don't usually come in that way. But I'm ashamed of myself, Doc. Please help. No, that's right. But what we end up talking about at the very beginning, whether they realize it or not, is shame. We're talking about one of the biggest barriers to growth, emotional growth and wellness, and that is the shame, the sense that you're not a worthy person. So how, how do you help people with that in the clinic? And I also want to ask you, as a follow-on to that, what, what can organizations do? How, how does the business world and other organizations affect the capacity of individuals to uh, to feel good about themselves and to uh-huh. and to accept their limitations, uh, feel compassion for themselves, and be able to move forward and continue to grow and be productive. Yeah, that question in itself excites me. I get so thrilled with the possibility of what we can do differently mm-hmm. so that people, you know, wouldn't be as burdened as they are. Good. Um, you know, so in terms of within the practice itself, I mm-hmm. mean, so much of what we talk about when we talk about dealing with shame comes from trying to understand what it is about either what you've gone through or what you feel or what you experience in life or what you think that causes you to feel not good enough, right? So you got to mm-hmm. first start with that. And almost always what, what people end up describing, and again, don't totally walk in saying this, but what they really are implying is they're associating their deeds, meaning what I have done, with their worth, meaning who am I. And who I am and what I do are two totally different things, and yet we mix them together all the time. I'm intrigued by your book about parenting that's coming out. I can't wait to read it. Uh, But, you know, even from a young age, we as parents inadvertently kind of link the two things together that who you are and what you do are put together. So you bring home a great report card, gosh, I'm so proud of you, you're such a good kid. Or you know, you, you empty the dishwasher for me, gosh, look at you, I'm so, I'm so proud of you, you're such a good kid. We link what you do with who you are. And what, what that tells us then is, then if we don't do good things, then the only other option left is I'm not good enough. Hmm. And so challenging that notion from the very beginning and saying, hey, what if we could separate those two things out? We're going to talk about what you've done or what's been done to you or what you've been thinking or what you've been feeling. We're going to deal with all of that. But we also need to come up with a way of understanding that who you are is much more constant than that. And I'm going to tell you, not only is it constant, it's constantly good. Hmm. And we've got to figure that out. And that sounds really heavy, and it's hard to even know where to begin. So, you know, in the book, I try to give some really practical ways of, of – mm-hmm. Let, let's you know find out where is a good spot to begin to understand who you are. That has nothing to do with who's around you, what's going on in your life. Is it good right now? Is it not good right now? How old you are? Let's find a way to figure out who you are. Um, and I think if you translate that to the world at large, um, then perhaps the way that we can do this, even in the business world, is to not always tie those two things together. I mean, your, your, your sense of worth and, and value um, and the respect that someone shows you ought to be constant. And yet the work that we do, look, it's up and down. Sometimes I've done work that is mm-hmm. worthy of being recognized and, and, and rewarded, and mm-hmm. sometimes I've done work that, you know, unfortunately resulted perhaps in this may not be the right fit for me. Um, mm-hmm. But I can navigate up and down of life if I know that who I am is constant. But if my work performance 
in, in my mind tells me that, see there, you really aren't good enough, then that's a bigger burden. So, so being able to acknowledge people's value, worth, and respect simply for being, but then also being, have, being able to have conversations about performance, we just have to separate those two things out. And, and, and that starts with parenting, mm-hmm. and it goes all the way through into adulthood. All right, well, let's start with parenting. What, what's yeah. your best advice for parents to, uh, to ensure that they are um, demonstrating unconditional love and acceptance for their children despite the limitations, disappointments, uh, and all the rest that, yeah, that yeah. parents, of course, feel about their children? Of course, of course. I mean, and, and, and to get parents on the same page, sometimes what I will say to parents is, I think a common thread experience that many of us were able to have mm-hmm. is, you know, I remember the moment my, my, our older child came into this world, the first child mm-hmm. we had had, and, mm-hmm. and when she came into this world, I suddenly uh, I held her for the first time, hmm. and I had this immense amount of love that I can't even describe. I can, and if you, and I if, can relate. <laughs> right? If you've gone through it, you can relate to it. You know what that feeling was. Mm-hmm. It, it changed was my big, career. It changed it, everything. Did everything. It rocked your world. It, it turned it upside down in the best way possible. And think about it. She had done nothing. <laughs> she hadn't Googled or, 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 or you know, well, she, yet. She made her she way out of the womb somehow. Yet. She hadn't done anything, <laughs> and yet you felt this immense amount of love. Why yeah. did you feel that? You felt this immense amount of love because you saw in her a innate, divine, incredible goodness, and you immediately loved it. And it had nothing to do with what she did. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, as she did things, you, you would acknowledge those things as well, right? Mm-hmm. So if we as parents can kind of remind ourselves, the goal is to not only see our children always as that same, what I call a spark of the divine that we saw in that moment, but the goal is to get through life and eventually cut through all of our own shame so that we realize we're the same spark that we saw in that moment in her. Mm-hmm. That's where we're headed. Yeah. Now, to do that means we really got to deal with separating out all these things that we've done that we think really said something different about us. We got to deal with it. We got to feel it. We got to completely understand it so that we can really release it. And so, from a parenting standpoint, I think you know if we can be on the same page of saying, okay, that feeling was who they are. Now I got to deal with what they've done. I've got to be really clear that when I talk to my child, I explain it exactly that way. What do you mean? So if a child gets in trouble, you know, oftentimes a child will sometimes when they get in trouble, especially an anxious kind of child, um, will repeatedly come back and say, are you still mad at me? Do you love me? Do you, you know, they're looking for reassurance. Mm-hmm. And, and we tend to say, I, you know, I, I do love you. I don't like what you did. We tend to say that, but we don't always explain really what that means. And so being able to say, look, who, I, who, I, who you are and the person that I love is never going to be altered at all. Mm-hmm. What you do is going to go up and down depending on how the, how the day goes. Mm-hmm. So if you bring home that report card, going back to that example for one second, yes. um, maybe being able to say, wow, look at this. Look, look at these great grades that you've gotten. There you go showing your creativity again, if that's one of the traits you see in your child. Mm-hmm. Now, who he is, part of who he is is a being, a being who's creative, and that showed up this time in what he did. But if tomorrow's report card isn't good, he's still a creative being, right? Mm-hmm. You're recognizing his gift and who he is separate than what he's done. And, and the more you kind of recognize his gifts for him, the more he's able to kind of say, I am creative. I can't mm-hmm. even deny that. Mm-hmm. Or whatever the trait is you see in yourself. So a primary task here yeah. for, for parents is, is just to continually uh, hold a mirror up in, in some sense to the, to the inner 
uh, life of, of the child so that she sees herself as, uh, as inherently a valued, good human being. Right. And, and, not, and not based on some false sense of because I said so, but because mm-hmm. if, it's, if these are your gifts, if let's say creativity is one of your gifts, it keeps showing up. It keeps mm-hmm. showing up. And even when I'm, I'm upset with what you did, I can't deny it. Even when you're upset with yourself, you can't deny it. So I, I, it is like holding up a mirror. And, and I think in order to do that very effectively as yes. parents, you have to first do it with yourself. Right? Yes. And so going back to asking yourself, who am I, means you've got to hold up a mirror to yourself mm-hmm. and say, what are my innate traits and gifts mm-hmm. and, and pieces of myself that really are constant? Well, I, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. Please continue. Well, no, I was going to say, so there's an exercise I describe in the book that if you would like, I can try to describe briefly called sure. The Five Gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Five Gifts came from, you know, in the book I talk about, I share some patient stories, which are compilation stories of yes. many, many, many people. Mm-hmm. But then I share my own experiences as well. And, and the real reason to even put myself into the book is, is kind of the reason that I respect what you said many times that when I've heard your show, where you've also said, I, I understand mental health or, or the need to be emotionally well. I understand it from a personal perspective, mm-hmm. from my family's perspective. I think when we become vulnerable, you know, we, we, we find that people's guard comes down as well. Absolutely. So, well, so they see you as a, as a person just like them, struggling with the same issues that are common to us all. That's right. And so, so trust grows. This, and, yeah, I'm not preaching. This is not a textbook. Mm-hmm. This is a conversation. And to have a conversation, I'm a part of it. And I'd invite you to be a part of it. And so in the book, I, I talk about personal experiences. But one of them was being 20 years old and being at the lowest point in my life, feeling like I had nothing left to really offer and feeling like I would never be good enough and beating myself up as I had done for years and years in my own head. And at some point in that, on that really low day that I describe in the book, um, I, I, was, I was getting onto a bus going from one end of campus to another. And as I was getting on the bus, I was beating myself up in my head and saying something along the lines of, everyone on this bus is thinking that you are looking really, and then fill in the blank. I don't remember the, the exact word of the day. I do remember it was raining, and so knowing me, it was a bad hair day, and it was, the word was probably ugly. Um, but, but it's the word. The word okay, was, let's start with ugly. Yeah, let's start with that and say everyone on this bus is thinking you're looking really ugly. Well, that wasn't so surprising. That conversation was a monologue I, I would have all the time. Oh what was surprising gosh. was in that moment, I actually had a, a brief window where unemotionally and very objectively I said to myself, do you really think? Do you really think everyone on this bus is thinking mm. you're looking really ugly? You, you tested that, that cognition that, that exactly. had a, a, a heavy hint of paranoia in it. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that, that's a perfect way to put it because not only did I look around and realize that most people probably objectively weren't really thinking mm-hmm. that, but I don't even think anyone noticed that I got on the bus. <laughs> right? Which no one a cares. a moment of, of feeling so irrelevant uh. that uh, no one really even noticed that. So I ran my own experiment. I decided I wasn't going to go to my next class. I skipped it, and I sat on that bus for an hour, and I said, okay, objectively now we're going to look to see who gives you by gesture or, or word ah, or some, collecting some data. reason to think. And, and as it turns out, as you can imagine, I got off that bus after an hour, and I realized that not only had most people not given me that information, but if I'm being honest, there were maybe one or two who might have even smiled or nodded at me and maybe even sent me a little bit of a positive vibe. 
And if that were the case, then all this time that I've been thinking that other people are thinking this, that, or the other about me, the truth is I don't know what they're thinking. And so, and so where does that then lead you? So where that led me was, well, then, my goodness, if I don't know what they're thinking and I've based who I am based on what other people think of me, well, then I don't even know who I am. And so sitting on that bench, realizing that I don't know who I am, um, was, was such a low point in my life that I, I gave myself a task, which I can only call divine because I don't know where it came from, but I, it popped in my head and I said to myself, you have 10 days to write down your five gifts. We were talking, Suvrat, about your exercise that you just discovered, really, in, yep. in, a, in a moment of insight, let's call it, um, right. th- this notion of the five gifts. So tell us about what you did and what, what you learned and, and how people can use that. Absolutely. So the rest of the story is that when I gave myself that task, I understood somehow innately that these five gifts, what I meant by that was these were traits of mine that I just couldn't deny. Good day, bad day, no matter how old I was, no matter what was going on, these were five traits about myself that I just couldn't deny. And I thought I was being very generous, giving myself 10 days to come up with five gifts. And why five? I don't, I don't know. It was just the number, and it sounded like a challenge. Three maybe wasn't enough, and five maybe was good. And mm-hmm. So anyway, I gave myself that task. Um, if you've never done that, I would encourage your listeners to do it. And I you know, kind of give parameters for it in the book. But I would encourage you to do it. It's the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. And what made it so hard? And you're going to tell us what those gifts are, right? Yeah. So what made it so hard was I I had gone through the first 20 years of my life acutely aware in my head of my experiment of showing to myself what I was doing wrong. I was going through my life showing myself that sure enough, I wasn't good enough because that was my fear. Um, I, I was an anxious child. I share that in the book, too. Um, I was a child who already had a lot of doubt in his head. I, had a, I was a child who was bullied. That made me, in my experiment, collect data that said, sure enough, you're not good enough because mm-hmm. other people see it, and that's why they pick on you. Um, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I talk about that in the book as mm-hmm. well. Um, and I felt like wow. all of that pointed to the truth, in quotes, that I wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And so the reason it was so hard was because I had never turned the experiment around. I had never really shined a light within and said, what is it about you that is innately good that you just can't deny? And so what I'll tell you is it took all 10 days to write the five gifts down, um, and I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I carried the piece of paper with me until I no longer had to look at it. I still have it somewhere. Um, And I would charge myself every day, especially on a bad day, and I would say, okay, fine, you think you have these, pick one, go use it. And so now I was going through the Give us an example. Yeah, so the example I'll give you is the one example that I, I, or the one gift that I share in the book that I knew I had. It was the first gift that popped into my head, and it was empathy. I knew I had empathy. I knew that no matter what, I could really understand emotionally how other people were feeling and where they were coming from. And so on a really bad day, I'd say to myself, okay, I tell you what, you think you have empathy, go use it. Mm-hmm. And I would go through the day looking for opportunity to use empathy. And let's say I was at the grocery store, and you know how they ring you up and say, did you find everything okay? How's your day been? And, 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 and looking for a place to use empathy, I would now answer it purposefully and say, yeah, my day's been okay. You look really busy. And the other person might say, oh, gosh, it's been a crazy day. And then I might say something like, well, 
I hope you get off of work soon. And the other person might say, gosh, got another hour to go. Mm-hmm. And I might say, hey, the good thing about being busy is at least it'll go by quickly. You hang in there, and I hope you go home and do nothing. And then we would laugh for a second, and I would walk away. And in my head, I would at least pat myself on the back and say, okay, you know what? You do have empathy. Mm-hmm. You do. And, and what that did for me, and I didn't realize it, it was the first step towards saying maybe this quote-unquote truth that I had proven to myself over the course of my life and in, in those first 20 years, maybe it wasn't entirely true. Maybe there was a little bit of room to doubt that I wasn't completely unworthy and not good enough. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a way for me to build on a second story that I can start telling myself. But look, I'm going to have to prove it now, so I'm going to go through life and I'm going to look for data but I'm going to look for data that doesn't just prove my fear. I'm mm-hmm. going to see if these gifts are true. So you were, and, you were a scientist in the laboratory of your own life. Right. That's exactly right. And, 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 and I could relate to that. I was someone who understood science. Mm-hmm. I was someone who was on a track to try to get into medical school. And so where everything else sounded a little hokey or it sounded like maybe that was too philosophical for me, this to me was an experiment. And the experiment mm-hmm. would yield a result. And the result was something, if I did it right, I was going to find out one way or the other. So that's got to have an effect of building your sense of uh, confidence in knowing your value. Could you give us an example of one of the other gifts that you discovered that you're willing to share with us? Yeah. So, so I say in the book that I never talk about any of my other gifts. Oh. And I don't. But here's why. It's not because I, I have anything to hold on to. I only make it, say that to make the point that yeah. when you're figuring out your own gifts, I actually don't want you to go around and ask the people in your life, even the closest ones, hey, what do you think are my gifts? Because mm-hmm. the whole point of this is you're running an experiment for yourself. It needs to be objective to you. You find out what your gifts are. And so simply to play the example of that, I don't point out my gifts. But what I will tell you is this. I have more than five. You have more than <laughs> five. Once you start figuring out what your gifts are, you then realize, well, if these are my gifts. I don't want to waste them. And you start going through life purposely looking for ways to use it. So child psychiatry, going back to where we began this this Mm -hmm. interview, I didn't just really stumble onto child psychiatry. I was looking for a place to use these five gifts, and psychiatry allows me to use those gifts every single day. Of course. Every single day. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that must be one of the main, if not the most important reason for why you enjoy it and why you're successful at it. Right. Right. And, and, you know, when we talk about living purposefully, to me, mm-hmm. living purposefully is making sure that before my head, hit, hit, head hits the pillow every night that I can stop and say, hey, did you use a gift today? And mm-hmm. if I did. You do you that? I, I do. I do that every day. Mm-hmm. And if I've done that, look, and you're, you won't fail at that because your gifts are innate and you're going to use them. You may not see it, you may not acknowledge it, but you're going to use them. Nope. So if you can say that, you've lived purposely. Mm-hmm. Which, again, getting to our primary theme here, reinforces or at least helps to shed some light on your sense of value as a person, independent right. of uh, how you think other people might see you. What That's are the, right. What are the, well, you had the capacity at 20 to be able to rise above the din of self-doubt you know, swirling about in your mind to 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 step back and and to run this experiment so that already puts you in a in a position uh, to be able to well to grow mm-hmm. not yeah. everybody has that cap- capability and they need help with that or they don't even understand what it would mean to do an experiment of that sort so how do you help people 
who don't have the natural or you know otherwise given ability to to be able to step back and and do that kind of uh, growth experiments. I, and I'm going to take the compliment you're giving me and say thank you, but I am also going to say this. I mean, I, I, I think the, the reason why I, I titled the book A Moment of Insight, um, you know, people come in to see me as a psychiatrist at, at some of their worst points, and, and, um, and they are seeking a way to have things get better and to have change come into their lives. And I always tell them, look, in order for change to happen, you have to have a moment of insight. A moment of insight is where you, even for a second, can objectively, without emotion, step aside, look beyond the outside of yourself for one second and see something differently about what you're doing, thinking, feeling, something in your life that you can now look at and say, gosh, that is not working for me. Thinking, feeling, being this way is not working for me. As soon as you can have that little moment of clarity, we can start building on that and go from there. So for many people, including for me on that really, really low day in my life, a lot of times that moment doesn't come until you hit rock bottom where you're really cracked open and now you you have to start saying why me how come what do i do you know how do i get through this and and so forth so on but what i what i challenge readers and and listeners is to is to look for these moments go through your day purposefully trying to find something that you see differently in your own life it gives you clarity of some type and a moment of insight can come in so many ways Mm -hmm. it can come from that song that's stuck in your head where, you know, we kind of curse that song that's in our head, but, hey, stop, listen to the words. Maybe there's something there that makes you see something differently. This conversation, I hope, when people listen to it, will make them see something differently. Um, Something that comes out your own mouth as you're talking to someone, you might want to stop and reflect on, and maybe that's what makes you see something differently. Mm -hmm. So it it came through adversity for me, um, but it doesn't have to. But I do think when you're going through difficult times, Take it as an opportunity to see something differently and say, maybe this story I've been telling myself, this truth, in quotes, that I've proven to myself, maybe there's room for, for a little bit of doubt there for me to start finding out if there's another way to see this. Uh, as we think about the workplace, uh, as we were discussing in the early part of this conversation, you know, Managers cannot really be psychiatrists, uh, nor can they be expected to be. How do you think uh, a progressive, intelligent, and ambitious manager can take from what you're you're advising here Mm -hmm. uh, some some practical wisdom in terms of how they work with their people? So I'm going to relate the managerial role very much to a parent-like role. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that is, you know, we have to, first of all, as parents or as managers in our own businesses, um, be able to talk to the the people in our lives with the understanding that when I talk to you about something you've done really well or you haven't done really well, I am not taking that as um, a statement of your worth value. I am taking it as something you've done that either is working or is not working. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and to be able to say that in a very um, intentional way, people pick up on that. You know, my tone will, will express to someone if what I'm saying is said with intention or not. And so saying to, to someone, I value you, um, and, and now we're going to talk about this, 
you'll you'll know if I mean it or I don't mean it. So I, I think there's mm-hmm. a little bit of that that happens. But I would also say, from the standpoint of of those of us who are being managed by, mm-hmm. um, you know, those who are, are are above us in a hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, within a business, I, I think we have to be the ones constantly reminding ourselves of that. So mm-hmm. if I am constantly checking emails, even when I'm at home, if I'm on vacation but can't turn my mind off from work. Mm-hmm. Some of that is because whether I have ever stopped to admit it or not, I am associating my worth with my performance. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty common problem, Yeah, I've got to step back and say, what emotion is really driving my work? Hmm. And, and then I've got to get that emotional need met in, in a healthier way rather than simply saying, how much more can I do? How much more can I do? How much more can I do? Mm-hmm. Because if you're working that much harder, your life off balance, then chances are it's off balance because you're expecting that role to give you more validation than it can. So what's a what's a common solution to that? Uh, I, obviously, everyone everyone's situation is different, mm-hmm. but if uh, if you if you have that a glimmer of insight into the idea that you're uh, you're giving everything to your your work role uh, because it's a way to somehow validate your worth. Uh, and and that's causing problems for you, say in your relationships or just your own physical and emotional health. Uh, I know this is a complicated question, but in in, in its simplest form, what what should one do when one discovers that in terms of finding alternative means for uh, validation? Yeah, you know, I think it is such a complicated question that that would be worth having over many, many, many hours of, of, of a discussion. <laughs> I, I know. And, and I can say a lot of it comes back down to one of the basic things we've been talking about, which is really understanding who you are that has nothing to do with what you do, mm-hmm. and then fortifying that daily. It's a daily act mm-hmm. to fortify and remind myself who I am and to test it out every single day. So it wasn't like once I learned and, and got the experiment mm-hmm. done at that age of 20 that it stopped, right? I mean, I, I run it every day, and I still try to figure it out. So having, for example, practices of, of mindfulness, mm-hmm. why is that important? Well, because what you're showing yourself is that if, in being still, if you can be still, who you are not only didn't go away, it actually came out more in those moments where you're being still. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those can start in the smallest ways possible. Sure. I always tell people you have to have a, a daily way to practice mindfulness. But, you know, I say that to busy people, and they sometimes at least internally roll their eyes and think, great, now I've got to find time to be mindful. Mm-hmm. Um, no, do something you're already doing in your day, but protect it as a time going to be mindful. Mm-hmm. So, so if I am in the shower, then for the next 10 minutes, I am only going to be in this shower. I'm going to watch the drops. I'm going to list, feel the lather. I'm going to smell the soap. Whatever, whatever works mm-hmm. for you. But find a way to show yourself that you are something other than just what you do all day long. And how does that um, make, make you a better father? It makes me such a better father because I see my children for who they are in a greater way than I ever would have otherwise imagined. Mm. Um, as someone who always judged himself for what he did as a, as a testimony of who he was, I love the fact that as a father, when I say to my child, I love you, I love you, period. I love you for that moment that I held you, that I knew that I felt this love and you hadn't done a thing for me. And I know that. I know that's the love Hmm. I have. And when I'm upset with you or I'm patting you on the back for something you did, I know in my head I'm really clear that has nothing to do with who you are. And I've been conveying that to my Hmm. children for their whole life. Hmm. It's up to them. Now, the rest is up to them. They have to Hmm. also 
not run the experiment to say, well, he's just saying that to be nice or he doesn't really mean that. Mm-hmm. You know, anxious people, we take compliments and we, we turn it on its head. Hmm. Uh, and I sure did that as well. Hmm. But, but from my end, what I'm trying to give my children is at least from my end, the understanding that I love who you are, period. You know, I uh, just a couple of weeks ago laid my father down to rest. Mm-hmm. He died just two weeks ago. And as I was watching his coffin and covering it with dirt, I, uh, I kept saying in my head, I love you. Mm-hmm. And it recalled for me, and what you've been saying here has evoked this for me, the, you know, the sense that I had when my first child was born, same as you, same as so many of us, uh, not everyone, but often, uh, when you become a parent, you're, you, 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 it taps into some, some divine spark, I think is a good word for it, yeah. for the connection to you know, the innate value of a life that is connected to you fundamentally. And I felt a similar kind of um, uh, emotion in, 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 in my father's life after it had just ended. It, mm. it was a similar kind of profound, uh, heart-wide-open sense yeah. of connection that, uh, that this conversation is, is recalling for me. I don't know if that's relevant to anything that we're talking that's about, but I couldn't have... completely relevant. It's how, completely How do relevant. you see it? Where's, where's the connection, doctor? It's complete. <laughs> it wasn't a ramble. It was a beautiful testimony to the fact that when you're connected to someone and you say that you love them, mm-hmm. you, you on some level really do understand that that love isn't about what he's done. It really is for who he is. Yeah. Now, we complicate it in our life because, you know, again, we've been trained to think of the two going together. So as a rebellious teen or when our dad was telling us what to do growing up, you mm-hmm. might have kind of, you know, in your head cursed them out or thought. But ultimately, the person you loved, you were honoring the person that he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what that was all about. And I think at the end of a life or the beginning of a life, you're able to see who they are in the most open, cracked open, vulnerable way possible. And that's why it comes out so strongly in those moments. It was one of the greatest days of my life, uh, yeah, my father's funeral. I, and I had no idea that was coming in a, in a way that was similar to how I was completely unprepared for what was going to happen when, when my first child uh, yeah. entered the world. Yeah. These are yeah. profound moments uh, of, of vulnerability and openness to, to those great, powerful feelings of connection. What, as you think about the future, what's your greatest hope for young people in our society today? Not just the people that you see in your clinic, but for uh, young people, generally speaking, what, what are you hoping for in the years ahead? You know, before I say what I'm hoping for for them, what I do want to say is the younger generation has certainly given me reason to hope because Mm. uh, within the practice and even outside of it, I find that young people are able to and willing to talk about their emotional selves in a way that's different from the generation that came before. Um, they, They have more forums to do so. They have the vocabulary to do so. I have young people who will come in and say, I, I'm dealing with anxiety. I didn't even know what to call it when I was going through mm-hmm. it. And they're, they're coming in using the words. So I am hopeful because of the next generation. But for my, from my end to them, what I'm hopeful for is that we can build more on that. Because unfortunately, young people are also um, experiencing a time in life where there is more judgment, there is more 
potential to be aware of all that can happen and what can go mm-hmm. wrong, and it's coming from all directions. Mm-hmm. It's coming faster than it ever has, mm-hmm. and and the 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 way to navigate that I think is is even harder now without having an understanding of who you are. So so my hope for these young people is that they'll continue to talk, but also find. Uh, mentors and people in their lives who can help them navigate through that and understand that now that you're identifying emotion, let's also understand how to express it and how to release it. All emotion needs release, and there is a way to do such. Uh, And there's a way to do it in a healthy way and an unhealthy way. Let us help you figure out how to release emotion in a healthy way. And fathers in in our society tend to be less capable uh, than than mothers because of their socialization and training. So, what advice do you have for the the fathers out there listening for how they can help to be the kind of uh, parents that their children need? Sometimes I think for us um, as a just kind of throwing us all in the same boat for one second. Sometimes you know we grew up seemingly getting messages about what it means to be a man in terms of our relationship with our own emotions and our own feelings. Um, So it starts with really kind of going back and having that moment of insight to say maybe that wasn't entirely truthful either. Maybe I need to understand that in order to be completely available to someone else, certainly as a parent, I need to be in touch with my own sense of emotion and how to deal with it. I need to understand how to identify the right emotion. You know, so many men lump emotions together. So when I ask a a man in my practice who's coming to see me, tell me about your mood, how you're doing, they tend to answer good or bad. Mm -hmm. Well, mood isn't good or bad. Um, Mm -hmm. There are many, many other nuances to it. Just look at how many emojis we have on our phone. There's more than two faces. It's not a sad face and a happy face. There's many, many emotions. Mm -hmm. So it starts with challenging the, the relationship that we as men have with our own feelings. It means learning how to be able to identify what we're feeling, mm-hmm. and it means learning how to express those feelings so that we're expressing it the right way for the right emotion. If I'm sad, I should not express that as anger. I should express that as sadness. Mm-hmm. If I'm embarrassed, that's not the same thing as being sad. Mm-hmm. If I'm scared, that's not the same thing as being angry. So we have to kind of be able to do that for ourselves and then turn around and model and help our children go through that as well. Um, we play a big role in how they're going to do that as adults by by allowing for a space where it's good, healthy, and expected that you will do this and I will help you through it. Um, I was blessed to have a father. You mentioned your father, and I feel like I need to end with mentioning mine as well. I am so blessed to have the father that I have in my life. And even in going through all the difficult times and the things that I went through in my life that he didn't even know about until recently, mm-hmm. um, the one thing that my father always did was he gave me a space to be emotional, he showed me what it meant to be sensitive, and he valued the fact that I was someone who was an emotional being. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for my dad for having done that. I'll always be grateful for him for doing that. Suvarat, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Where's the best place for listeners to find out more about your book and the other great work you're doing? Thank you for having me, Stu. Um, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, again, it's a moment of insight. Uh, and it's on Amazon. It's also on Audible. I know a lot of people like to listen rather mm-hmm. than read things nowadays, so it is on Audible, and it's my own voice. I talk about my own story Wonderful. Um, on Audible as well. And then I'm on Facebook. People can reach out to me, A Moment of Insight, and I'm on Instagram, Dr. B Moment. Awesome. Dr. B, thank you so much. Really thank you, Stu. I appreciate it. I hope you found my conversation with Dr. Suvrat Bhargave to be enlightening and that it sparked some fresh insights about 
what emotional wellness means to you and in your life and the people that you care about in all the different parts of your life. Here now is a challenge for you. An invitation, a heartfelt invitation. Take a moment to draft your list of what Dr. B refers to as your gifts. The five. You can always revise it, so don't stress. What are those five gifts that you, in your distinctive and particular way, have? Everybody's got them. And then choose one on which to reflect at the end of this very day, asking yourself this simple question. Did you use that gift today? I'd love to hear what you discover from this experiment. So get in touch with me directly at friedmanatwharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for on-air broadcasts of Work and Life on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.